time of Reagan, and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. Casey, have you heard the latest thing in podcasting? What's that? It's, it's just getting started in Europe. It's coming to the United States, but it's going to be big. It's going to be big, and we got you. Got to try this. It's where you scream right into the microphone. <laughs> hey, do you have any advices for me, Mike? I have, I have plenty of advices, but I can't promise they're good advices. <laughs> okay. So, of course, we are talking this month about Pumping Iron from the year 1977, the documentary docudrama. Docudrama. Not, docudrama, yeah. directed by George Butler, who also directed Pumping Iron 2, colon, The Women, The Endurance, Shackleton's legendary Antarctic expedition, Roving Mars for IMAX, and Going Up River, The Long War of John Kerry, with co-director Robert Fiore, who did uh, directed For Life Against the War. So joining us on this discussion of a very strange film that brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to the attention of people nationally for the first time that made uh, people who cast for movies notice him, is longtime friend of the show and host of the Dearly Departed and Missed hands-free football podcast, Dave Brulette. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm real, real, uh, real excited to be here for this one. You know, we, when when we have those oddball, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that are not like the others, we need the biggest oddball that we have in our stable, <laughs> and that's Dave. Yeah this this one is this is an interesting take because it's like I I've never I hadn't seen this before going into it. And Neither have I. It was definitely kind of like I I did not know what to expect. It's just like there's a little part of like hey I would love to be on the show and everything. But, oh, pumping iron is that the one? <laughs> Do I can I? You already did Total Recall, didn't you? Oh man. <laughs> yeah, pumping iron is fantastic. <laughs> I I saw this. I definitely saw this like in my twenties. Uh, I got it from Netflix back when you know. Oh, you still have Netflix through the mail, I think. Don't I you, do. Yeah. I'm I'm the guy who still gets discs. <laughs> Anyways, wow. like only like 15 years ago, this uh, I saw it, and uh, I have to say that the Arnoldisms are burned into my memory, but the other guys uh, just forgettable. I think mo- most of the other bodybuilders in here, and this is that's the thing to understand about this is with the exception of poor Lou Ferrigno. Yeah, Lou Ferrigno <laughs> is that they kind of the filmmakers had the idea about making a movie about bodybuilding, and that's what this is, but it be quickly becomes. The Arnold Schwarzenegger show, of course, of course. Right, right. So, Dave, if you had to sum up the narrative arc, I'm not going to say the plot, but the narrative <laughs> arc of Pumping Iron in like a paragraph or two, what is this movie about? Uh, this movie is about the, it's a build up to two competitions, the Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia, which is one is for amateur bodybuilders, one's for professional. And it's just following this weird subculture that particularly at the time, nobody knew anything about. And uh, the people involved and the biggest name then was Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he wasn't the biggest name in the world. And all of that set to music that the Magic School Bus would be embarrassed of. <laughs> <laughs> I I just have to say... Uh, on the you just mentioned the music, you know. Sometimes we watch movies for this podcast for our podcasts, uh, and they're the kind that you might be embarrassed if someone walked in on you watching. <laughs> this movie is definitely one of those because you have music that does sound like it's from a seventies porno, and you have oiled up guys grunting, <laughs> and these all these tight camera angles on muscles sort of flexing, and you're like, so many speedos. This this is pornographic. <laughs> Just so much oiled up hot dog skin. <laughs> and and that's the other thing, too, is that it's also very 1970s, which makes it look even more pornographic. There are so many amazing feathered hair helmets in this movie. Mustaches <laughs> and, yeah. So many unironic mustaches, <laughs> giant sideburns, and these, these collars Colored shirts that these guys wear are <laughs> spectacular with these patterns and these like hang glider like lapels. It's like oh, and I just get like my thought of the music. It's like it definitely does have a seventies porn feel, but I I just when I'm watching I'm like. 
It's the 70s. Pink Floyd's making mu- music in the 70s. You know what good music sounds like. How did you land here? Like, it, 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 the thing that's strange about this is this is, it's not like today where you can have like a, you know, you can have like HBO does a documentary and it's, they've got like an amazing cinematographer or whatever. I mean, these are people with probably with small 16 millimeter or even eight millimeter camcorders that are walking around Gold's gym or whatever, or right. like they, this is shooting from the hip. This is a scrappy production that ran out of money and they had to like do fundraising for two years, even to be able to get this thing off the ground. So there is very little that is planned and professional about this. This is, <laughs> this is about as indie as you could get. And it's in Indian at a time when it's, you know, we've talked about it for American movie. It's expensive yeah. to make a documentary to bring that much footage. They had, had that much footage and they were sitting on it for two years. So this movie was was released in 77, but it's filmed in 1975. Right. I saw the, the making of documentary that's on the DVD as well. This one was produced in 2002. And they actually had to figure out a way how to take all that footage and make a movie. How do we cut it together? How do we release it? And, um... Because the the director, George Butler, was in tremendous credit card debt. And one of the ways he got out of it was they said, hey, we're going to go to, I think it was like the L.A. Gallery. Right. It was like to go to an art museum and have on sort of a rotating pedestal all of these bodybuilders to sort of show how crazy and sort of artistic and try to treat them almost like living statues in front of all these art critics and art fans. And it was also a way to sort of like say, hey, there's an audience for this. They can see this as something really interesting and strange and treat this like to an art crowd. And they were able to make tons of money. I think they expected only like 300 something people to show up, but it was like 5,000 people. And that's how that money, that money sort of came in, in $5 bill increments to, (laughs) to be able to fund this thing. And I really look at this and see that a lot of the, the high glossy, high budget documentaries about sports that you see on HBO probably wouldn't be possible without pumping iron. Oh, absolutely. Because they showed that a movie like this could have crossover appeal outside of just fans of a very specific sport, that there could be a narrative or something interesting, or even just the idea of going into a subculture that is kind of strange and weird. And it's like, I don't know who the fuck these guys are who are, are sculpting their bodies so, this way, but this is fascinating. Can, can we talk about this? Because this is the thing that I think I mentioned on the Arnold panel that we did for Radio versus the Martians so long ago. Who is the audience for in 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 the era of like 1975 who are the people who go to a bodybuilding competition is it a we're going to go see the freak show stuff like the strongman at the circus is it for people in prairie interest who just want to be sort of sexually thrilled by uh, by seeing oiled up strong men. Um, some of it I imagine is professional, like people who are taking pictures or writers for magazine, sports magazines or bodybuilding magazines. But this thing is that I found that's so crazy I've, that I've, I knew like, I don't know how long ago um, is that bodybuilding magazines and bodybuilding films were like the first uh, porn. When you when you when you couldn't do like a gay porn mag, you would basically make a male bodybuilding uh, like so, it'd be like, oh, this is for hobbyists, but really, it was just there to have like guys with barely any clothes on who are like super attractive, and that's what that's the audience they would be sold for. It it seems strange that they never they 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 play up the fact that that like Arnold is like sexy and um women love him and like people are people are obviously attracted to him. They don't ever address the fact that that has to be such a huge reason for this this existence not just because like oh it's so cool that these these guys are so freakishly cartoonishly huge um but that also there must have to be that that sexual aspect where people are just like well this is like a sports illustrated magazine you know sports illustrated swimsuit issue right i think it when you say is this for period reasons is this for like exercise reasons is this for i said the answer is yes i think that everyone <laughs> is there for slightly different reasons um and the weird thing is i don't think there's that much hard difference uh, between the period <laughs> version of this and the sports version of this, because ultimately it is about admiring the work that somebody did on their own body. You are admiring a human body as almost a piece of art or it's being displayed as a performance that that is ultimately what this is. This is all about. Um, I don't know. Cause the crowds for like a sporting event, like say the Super Bowl, are really tiny but as far as trying to get any kind of uh, event going yourselves, not being a rich organization, they look huge. 
Right. Um, they look like there's at least 500 to 1,000 people at some of these events like Mr. Olympia. So clearly people are willing to fly from all over the world to see it. Like go right. to a different continent, not right. just like I'm in like the basement of like the Holiday Inn in like Bayonne, New Jersey. Well, that's the thing that I think is kind of missing from the story here, because obviously this is a very deliberately assembled kind of we call it a docudrama because it it is a narrative that was assembled by the filmmakers. We don't see aside from like oh we see Gold's Gym, the guys working out at Gold's Gym, and oh we see like uh, Lou Ferrigno where he works out in Brooklyn or whatever in that dungeon. Um, but yes, <laughs> you don't, and you the kind of the only venues you see them doing this at are basically like the biggest, the two big competitions. So presumably the bit at that, that that time the biggest in the world, the biggest that it's ever going to get. But like. Take our pro wrestling analogy. If this is like the territory days, like what's the territory day equivalent, you know, the territory days exhibition equivalent of a bodybuilding competition in 1975, Mm -hmm. a local one, one from, you know, L.A. County. Like, what does it look like? Where is it? Who is coming to these things? Why are they there? (laughs) I just don't understand. And I think it's like, I think a lot of stuff I was reading about this movie after watching it is about how it was at the time such a strange niche subculture. Like everyone thought it was weird and that like these shows would take place in half filled VFW halls. Whereas now it's like, if you look, if you go find a bodybuilding competition, they're on stages with thousands of people with laser lights and live music. And it's a crazy production. And it's kind of like, watching it's like esports when esports started it was like a couple guys on a couple computers maybe a few people were watching and now you see these giant arenas where people are playing together and everything and there was a time when that was such a strange concept and i actually think the movie had a lot to do with sort of bringing to the forefront the concept of bodybuilding body bodybuilding in itself is very strange because it is very specifically building muscle mass for Vain looks. Oh, the the vanity in this the, yeah. movie. Yeah, the, the smarman vanity. The, is, the, is... Like the, the admiring yourselves, the number of times you just see a guy just like looking at himself in the mirror is just like this all the time, constantly. But, but it's also, if you're going to develop a human body to maximize strength and speed and for a practical reason, this is not the kind of body that you build. No. That if you look at guys in say like the strongman competitions that you see on like ESPN4, uh, those guys look like tree stumps. And right. they've these giant, they've, their arms look very similar. There's these ripped arms. But the idea of building your body and shaping it so that it's like a V is not what a lot of those guys do. So in a lot of ways, these guys are more based on the sort of illustrations of like gods and superheroes. And right. it's not a practical athletic body in that sort of way. And you even look at Arnold Schwarzenegger as he got into movies it became less extreme and more practical as he went yeah. where he still is a t- super jacked up dude. And this is the most jacked you're ever going to see him, but it's less about the sort of taking that to its most amplified extreme and instead just going, he's already 20 times bigger than anyone else in this movie. You don't have to push it. Right. And and that's exactly the thing is that like, it is not a practical, it is not, it's not good for actually athletic reasons. I remember talking to somebody who's into MMA, which is not my thing. It never has been, but he told me, he's like, go to an MMA gym for a long time. And you'll always see these guys who have these sculpted abs and these giant forceps and biceps and everything. And they come in thinking that they're the hot shit and they're going to beat everyone up. They can last for about 10 seconds and then they get so tired and so worn out. They can't keep fighting. And then they get their butts kicked. But you get a guy who looks like a trucker with a big beer belly who's faster than you would ever imagine and can go for an hour and continue to pound on you. Yeah. Because that's right. what a real athlete looks like. It's a big, thick core and everything. You know, everything supports everything else. It doesn't look good per se. You don't see these guys represented at like a caber toss. You don't see right. these guys with a big wheelbarrow full of giant rocks in it. Uh, because <laughs> nor have, are these the kind of guys that go to the Olympics and like run hurdles. Yeah, like that that body would not make sense. For, you're not going to yeah. do sort of these sort of aesthetic kind of exercises if you're going to build a body for a practical reason. And that's the other thing that separates this from other sports. Like if you're a baseball player and you can throw a 90 mile per hour fast pitch, 
nobody gives a fuck what your form looks like. (laughs) You can throw a 90 mile per hour pitch. It doesn't matter if your arm looks weird or your elbow pokes out or any of that shit. And if you're the fastest guy on a track team, who cares what you do with your arms if you're faster than everybody else? (laughs) It just might become a thing that everyone teases you about. It becomes your signature. But in bodybuilding, form is everything. It's not, it's not just about shaping your body to look a very specific way aesthetically, but it's also like a series of chained poses from one to the next where you're specifically highlighting muscle groups yeah. so that you can show all the hard work you've done. Okay, now it's time to make your biceps look as big as possible. Now it's time to make your legs and your, your calves look as big as possible. And how do you confidently and smoothly move from one? It's almost like a martial arts blockchain, the way it kind of <laughs> operates. Where it's, and that's one of the things you see early on in the movie is that Arnold and his good friend, uh, Franco Colombo, who's kind of like mini Arnold. Um, <laughs> I kind of love that guy. Five, uh, yeah, he's five awesome. foot two, was he? <laughs> five foot five. Five foot five. five. He's, he's a little guy. Before, little... before we abandon the idea of the sport, I just want to say mm-hmm. that that's, it's interesting because this is a type of, this is a sport that I would put in a category of like, uh, like the floor gymnastics or surfing or something, figure where, skating, where the where the judging is is totally qualitative, right? Yeah. Um, where it's not like you're doing this in five seconds. It's like there are judges that are taking their opinions and being like, "Are you good, better than this guy or not?" The difference being like whether it's the surfing competition or whether it's the figure skating or whatever is those people are actually competing and doing something. Mm-hmm. Whereas the thing about the bodybuilder is all of their work is done beforehand. So all of their, 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 the athletic sort of effort has been done in the months and years leading up to them coming to the stage and then like pumping up their muscles full of blood. And that is, to me, that's strange. Like, yes, there's a performance because mm-hmm. there are poses, but I'm sure the posing is not nearly as hard as the years and years and years and years of going to the gym every day. Oh, right. yeah. But I've noticed <laughs> that there is one thing and it is the posing. And it's like, I can't articulate what separates really good posing from really bad posing except that it feels when you do it well like the the mustache dude at the end where Arnold is like I got chills and like, <laughs> I watched it and I got it I got what the, like yeah. this guy is moving in such a way that it doesn't feel like I'm watching a guy do 10 things like now I'm going to do this stop now I'm going to do this stop and he's just flexing his arms up flexing his arms down and these are separate movements how do I make it look like these are all stages of one big smooth movement and when a guy bodybuilding loses his confidence and somebody gets in his head, you can tell something's wrong. Right. <laughs> you see that happen a couple times in this movie where a guy's confidence is just fucked. And he does the thing where he kind of stops, does this. And there's moments where he clearly doesn't know what to do with his arms and he looks uncomfortable. And I think psychologically, this is very true. This is how cringe humor works. When somebody is uncomfortable in front of you, it makes you uncomfortable. Right. Right. And I think there's something to that. The whole movie opening, the very first shot, and it's something I've learned about movies. The first shot is going to tell you what you most need to know about the movie. The first shot is Arnold with a ballerina. Yeah. And she's teaching him poses and she's talking about grace in movement and she's talking about understand they're not looking at you just when you're stopped they're looking as at you as you're switching between so you need to make that motion a part of the post and hearing that conversation like just starting in I'm like okay i'm already deeper in this than i thought there was to go yeah <laughs> and that- what i love is that arnold is also in a situation where you're in the late 1970s this is a super macho culture there's probably a lot of toxic male bullshit all over these guys (laughs) but you watch arnold in this this moment where he's being basically being instructed by a ballerina and how seriously he's taking how absolutely focused he is on listening to what she's teaching him and i could see a lot of guys especially in a subculture like this going i'm not going to listen to some chick this is girly shit Right. And no, Arnold's like, I want to be the best at what I do. And I think he's not, he, does, he never feels insecure in this movie. He not always, at all. He is no. absolutely comfortable. He never feels silly. He seems to find a way to have fun no matter what he's doing. And he's also takes this so incredibly seriously, like him and Franco Colombo um, being instructed by a ballerina and going, okay, I'm watching this. Okay, that's how I move my arm. And you see Arnold moving more and more like, 
He's in ballet and saying, that's how, that, that's how I move my body from one pose to another. And she's saying, this is where you got to move your eye line. You got to look up, look up towards your hand. You got to be one line that the movement of your body has to be one line. And it's stuff like that, that you go, Oh, like you said, there's a lot more to this. I thought you just walked out there and you go, that's a really muscled guy. Ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, there was something else a bit. And when it comes to the judging that I just, I can't understand. Like, it seems like he won uh, Mr. Olympia, which is the profession, the highest professional honor you could get six years in a row. This was his last one. And then he retires at the end of the film. I, he is supposed to be so clearly better than everyone else. He is the Michael Jordan of bodybuilding. And I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, I don't see a difference. I like, I know they're judging on something, but I can't see it. Like all of these are incredibly well-crafted half naked human beings with more muscles than I've ever had in my life combined. <laughs> and it's like, how, how do you judge? How do you judge Lou Ferrigno versus Arnold Schwarzenegger? Like, they're both monstrous. They're both also like very like they mention a lot of times sy symmetry, and I'm like, well, oh, yeah, right, they're, right. they're both very symmetrical. Yeah, I I don't know how the judging even works in this. I mean, you, they just you just obviously have to be sensitive to the gradations of how like they talk about the things being proportional. I think that's maybe mm -hmm. one thing that you or I probably wouldn't understand if we weren't like in bodybuilding is to understand like, oh, well, your shoulders look a little too small relative to your pecs, relative to your abs or something, right? Like, yeah. clearly, I, and I, th I had this thought, I had to wrote, wrote this note down as like, I think the shop talk among bodybuilders is probably like the most boring shop talk ever. <laughs> It'd be like, no, you just make your lats bigger. You know, if you can put lats are bigger, then your deltoid's going to be, and you're like, oh, okay, you're just talking about muscle groups the whole day. <laughs> that was the thing that's interesting because we've talked about this movie made bodybuilding more mainstream, but it didn't make it mainstream. Right. That Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno both became stars after this movie. I think after this, this the same year that this movie came out, uh, Lou Ferrigno became TV's Incredible Hulk. Mm -hmm. So that's what he is known for. That is the the first line of his obituary is that Lou Ferrigno is the Hulk. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a couple years after this movie came out, started to become the biggest star in Hollywood. Like not just the biggest action guy, not just the biggest like muscle guy. Cause there's a lot of muscle guys in Hollywood. And, you know, whenever a production wants to make like a fantasy movie or a sci-fi movie, they'll probably go down to like gold's gym and grab a bunch of muscle guys. And most of them are going to get killed by the beast master or they're <laughs> going to put on a rubber suit and cause they're really tall and muscular and you can have him be the Gorn or something. But that's about as far as it goes. Arnold. The Sven Ole Thorsen career. Arnold was a superstar. Well, no, but, no, no. no. The, I think we should clarify, though, because so this this takes place in 1975. Mm -hmm. The movie's not released until 77. In 76, he's in Stay Hungry, yeah. where he basically plays himself. He plays a bodybuilder and a wins character. a golden globe for it right and yeah and he gets he gets globe. noticed <laughs> and it was because partially because of the notice that he got because of stay hungry that gave the filmmakers for this movie the ability to be like oh now we can get a release like yeah pe pe people are gonna f are gonna put this weird bodybuilding movie in theaters because we there's another big movie that had you know jeff bridges and what's her face in it um, and people will come to see Arnold Schwarzenegger because now they know who he actually is. But the funny thing is, is even if you move forward from here, it he still is in sort of a nascent period, um, but until like eighty two. Eighty like two is really where with he explodes. Conan, yeah, right. But, but it's it, so fascinating because this is like this is the start of the elbow of the of the rise right here. Yeah, and yeah. what I think is kind of interesting too is that bodybuilding never becomes that massive sport. Like if you want to put the opposite end of the spectrum to Arnold Schwarzenegger, it'd probably be Michael Jordan where Arnold Schwarzenegger is famous because he's Conan in the Terminator. Mm -hmm. He's famous because he's in total recall. Um, he's not famous because he's Mr. Olympia. Mr. Olympia is more famous because it used to be a title held by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. That's why we know what Mr. Olympia is, is because of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, where Michael Jordan was the lead actor in Space Jam, but that's not what we know him for. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know shit about sports, but in the 90s, you couldn't not know who Michael Jordan was. 
He was on everybody's sneakers. He was on his silhouette was on everyone's jersey. He's one of the few athletes that I could pick out in a crowd back then. I know his jersey number. I shouldn't know that. That's what a superstar athlete is. Arnold was Wait, never twenty three. Yeah, it absolutely is, is twenty three. Okay. I'm, I'm amazed that I even know that. See, I mean, it's that's, a prime number. That's that's a crossover hit as an athlete. Arnold never had that as Mr. Olympia. He has that as Arnold Schwarzenegger, the actor. If you ask anyone this guy's name, they're not going to think that. So he did elevate the sport after the fact, but he didn't, he transcended it more than dragged it up. I mean, that's really what we're kind of looking at. Um, Because a lot of these other guys, I don't know Ken Waller and I don't know Mike Katz and I don't know a lot of these guys or that that muscle guy with the the mustache who was really good at posing. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't know, Arnold won Mr. Olympia, but I thought that guy was really good. Well, you pose a really interesting idea about the sport in itself. And of course, Arnold being the most successful person who he became, as you said, more successful even than the sport itself. Um, They have a scene where they're, um, the, the, Arnold and the guys are laying around on the beach and Arnold is like kind of catnapping. They're laying on their tummies on Venice beach. And, uh, they're like, one of the guys is like, Oh, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to go see Lou. What do you want me to say? And then they have this sort of brief friendly th- thing. And then they're talking to Arnold about his career. Right. And they're saying like, you're the King. And there's only one way for the king to go. The king to, king can go down, right? Because they're this is other guys trying to do some psychological warfare on Arnold. And Arnold is like, or the king can stay on top. Yeah. You know? like, just, it, he's like, like, but here's the thing is when, by the time you get to the end of the movie and he retires, like that is the, that is the most Mr. Olympia can ever do for someone is what it did for him. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, you, there's never anywhere to go up from where he is. He could keep going for the next four, you know, 10 years and probably would start losing because he would be getting older and not able to, not able to keep up his routine. Like a 24 year old would be able to. So the, it also just speaks to how fucking smart he was. Yeah. Just to know I'm I've done this six years in a row, but I got I got to go to the next thing. But right. this is the thing that's that's different is that there's no other Mister Olympia that has become what Arnold Schwarzenegger no. became. No. It's not like that is a pathway to fame and fortune. Yeah, Lou Ferrigno is the next closest. And yeah, right. He's and the Hulk. Yeah, that's- he's the Hulk <laughs> on the, the 70s and 80s TV show. And that's not nothing. I recognize Lou Ferrigno. He had a really cool cameo in I Love You, Man, which was kind of neat. <laughs> but he's not a megastar. He wasn't highlighting movies. I mean, he got to be in like a Canon Films Hercules movie where he threw a bear into outer space. And that was kind of cool. <laughs> but... That was like the height of that kind of fame for him. Arnold, you can tell right off the bat, and the filmmakers knew it too, because at the opening credits, it says starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. And then it says, and also featuring, and then everybody else. They knew they were looking at a star. and But I mean, and you do too. Like the, uh, so you guys, I know you have a picture in your head now because you've seen it. The Arnold reclining on the chair, answering the questions. Yeah. The cockiness in his not not only in his voice and his answers but in his just like the way his body is he's sort of re- he's reclined back he's got one leg up and he's like his shoulders are totally relaxed and he's got this permanent smile on his face mm-hmm. and everything that they're answering he's got everything their question they're asking he's got the perfect like puckish like charming answer to it and he cuz he's like he's the fucking king of the world it's impossible to even even in the scenes where he's less guarded, uh, less on than this. He's like the most charming person in the room. Yeah, he's automatically a star. He lights up the screen, even when he's being a fucking asshole. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the thing I just find so amazing is that this is this is charm, man. When you're going out there and saying, "Yeah, of course, I want to be a bodybuilder." I thought of what are the powerful men of the world. I thought of dictators, <laughs> yes. and I thought of I thought of people who you remembered for hundreds of years, or like Jesus for thousands of years. <laughs> I mean, this is like some amazing bad guy speech, and I realize that a lot of times his on-air persona in this movie and I know he's playing it up yeah, he's, he's openly said yeah I'm kind of playing a little bit so of a wait, bad wait, guy. so is there kayfabe in this I need to ask the the pro wrestling my pro wrestling fan is there some kayfabe in this in this performance yeah I think there is yeah. I think everyone is playing it up and playing up the tensions just a little bit they're not being a fake person they're just being themselves turned up the volume well, and there's two a couple things with that. Absolutely, there is some of that. I have read that, number one, there's a story he tells about skipping his 
uh, father's funeral because when I'm preparing for a competition, I'm focused on that right, and everything right. else is gone. And it, my mother was so mad at me and everything. And he has this advice like, yeah, I, that story wasn't true. Of course he, it went to my father's funeral. He has tears in his eyes at that. That's the yeah. one thing that he actually has tears in his eyes. And I, if you read his biography, he just had a bad relationship with his dad, which is the reason why he didn't go. Like, no, you know, he did go. Oh, did he go? Yeah, he oh, did just, go. Maybe it was his brother that he was talking about. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, but yeah, yeah he, he did go. And he's like, I think he said in a later interview that like he'd heard that story from a different bodybuilder. He's like, well, that's a good bad guy thing. I'll tell that story. All right. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is playing it up. And what he really reminds me of, and I don't, speaking as a wrestling fan, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, there was a wrestler from the 90s named Kurt Hedick who wrestled under the name Mr. Perfect. And Mr. Perfect was the guy who was so arrogant because everything he did was perfect. <laughs> and Arnold, this is a, this, I wrote this down. This is a speech Arnold gives, and this is a straight-up Kurt Hennig promo. He says, I don't have any weak points. I had weak points three years ago, but my main thing in mind is, my goal always was to even out everything to the point that everything is perfect. <laughs> Which means if I want to increase one muscle half inch, the rest of my body has to increase. I would never make one muscle increase or decrease because everything fits together now. And all I have to do is get my posing routine down more perfect, which is almost impossible to do, you know. It's perfect already. <laughs> I am so glad no one was putting a camera in front of my face when I was 23 years old <laughs> making me say stuff because I maybe I wasn't quite there, but like I was, you know... When you're young, you just assume you know everything, and you would say things like, well, of course, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I have to imagine, even he, the man who, like, not only took over Hollywood, but, like, as my wife Carol said, when she walked in the house and saw me watching, she just stopped. She says, that man was my governor. And yeah. kept walking. <laughs> like, he has accomplished almost any everything anyone could in a lifetime, and I have to think he could go back and watch this movie and go, ooh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, ooh, that did not, ooh. But there's, there's something about, we know, we know the Arnold, uh, as he got older and, you know, as he moved from being just like ubiquitous action hero guy and to family-friendly sort of guy, um, He's so young. He's his sort of his facial features, his voice. He's so young. You almost now with the hindsight of time, distance of time, you can just be like, well, it's just because he's a kid because he basically still he might be a fucking huge jacked Quasimodo of a guy with, you know, the, but he's still a kid and he yeah. right. he talks like a kid talks and he thinks like a kid thinks. But here's the here's the really interesting thing is Arnold is 28 years old when yeah. this is being filmed. It's it's crazy to look back on this, but Arnold he's, is always he, older than you think he is. He's yeah. already been Hercules at this point. <laughs> he was 35 years old in Conan the Barbarian, if yeah. you do the math, which means he was 37 years old in the first Terminator. That's, yeah, almost 40. He was 44 years old in Terminator 2, the height of his career. So Arnold is always older than you think he is. So when you do go back to something like Hercules in New York or Pumping Iron, he looks really unnaturally young. You're not used to seeing him look that young. He's like been 35 for this huge chunk of his career, and then he became governor and immediately aged 20 years. Right. So it's really strange to see him this young, where he's got kind of that big 70s hair. He doesn't have the Terminator 2 flat top yet. And he's such a cocky prick, but he's so weirdly <laughs> likable. Yeah. So charming about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because he always smiles. And I don't think I've ever said this on the show before, but I really think of any actor in Hollywood, Arnold has the best smile because it's the one smile that never feels put on. It never feels phony. It never feels like because he's- Because the smile has his imperfection. Yeah. He's got the, he's got the gap tooth between the top teeth and it's the one- um, it's you could say like maybe his accent is his imperfection, but he's already done the magic of making the accent make him seem more otherworldly and other human. It's the gap teeth on his front. And he has perfect. Even this one, his teeth are white and perfect in ways mm -hmm. that mine will never be. Even <laughs> when he's Mister Olympia, it's like he smiles, huge toothy smile, and then you see the one gap in there. It's still symmetrical, but it's like, huh, that's a silly thing. That I he think has. it's the lack of insecurity. Yeah, and yeah. if you're not used to that, it's like I used to have a gap in my teeth. Um, the dentist fixed it without telling me. It was weird. I looked in the mirror and my feelings were actually briefly hurt. But, um, but it's because of people Arnold, like Arnold that I could feel kind of okay about having a gap in my teeth. And it's this confidence that he has that I've never had where he looks a bit like a dork when he smiles. He and he doesn't yep. care. 
He doesn't care. And, and that's what makes it feel that much more genuine because a person who's putting on a fake smile tries to cover their imperfections. And I think Arnold has this ability, this guy uh, who comes into Hollywood, says, I'm going to be a great actor. And he has this impossibly thick accent. He's got an impossible to pronounce last name. <laughs> and he takes those things and turns them from liabilities into strengths. And it's like, and his smile is just part of it. And when you see him smiling, even he's talking about how, you know, I, I could be like a dictator. Um, <laughs> and you see him gaslighting Lou for poor Lou Ferrigno. Oh, God. God, I want to hug that guy in this movie. And despite all that, you like him. I don't understand it. The thing is, I think he he knows that. He knows how useful that is. He knows how much it works because part of the thing is like the movie builds a, a lot of sort of like villain hero storylines. But the real truth behind this is these are all guys who are in a very small subculture who all work out together and all like each other. They're, they're, they're a big group of friends. They all love each other. And there are moments in the movie where that shines through. And there's this part where he's teaching, I think it's, was it uh, Frank Weller? Um, Waller. He, Waller. Waller. He's te- teaching oh, Ken Waller. Ken Waller. Thank you. He's teaching Ken Waller how to do poses. And he's like, look, when people are weak, they shrink up. They want to hide themselves. Right. But you're not weak. You should be so proud. Stick that chest out. Put your arm. Act like you actually care about this. Act like you understand that you are big and powerful as you are. And he's just teaching that just like pure confidence of like, yeah, this is who I am. And it's perfect. And Everyone should love that as much as I do. And so he's teaching that to other people in the film. So I think he really understands it. You get why he's popular. I mean, you see him, he's always smiling. He's gregarious. He's, he's spotting for people. He's giving people the advice. Like you mentioned, he's always saying, Oh, you got to move your arm like this. Look up, look up at your hand, follow the line. It's like, he takes stuff that he learns and he shares it really generously with people. Even if he talks about fucking with them later, like he does with (laughs) the guy who comes into the gym and seems to be like some weird, nobody who thinks he knows everything. And tells him that, oh, what you really got to do, and this is coming from Europe now, is you got (laughs) to scream when you pose. And when you wave your arms up high, your voice has got to get up high. And when he goes low, you got to roll low. And it was so weird. And and then just saying, like, yeah, they carried him out of that place by security. (laughs) And Arnold just kind of fucking with people. But also the way he talks about Lou. And that's what's so painful about Lou is that Lou Ferrigno is the Charlie Brown of this movie. Oh, God. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is Lucy with the football. (laughs) He's a a deaf man. so So he's disabled. Then he's a kid who is disabled, who had like a, and they established this as, as sort of like a super sheltered childhood. And then he just happened to grow into this giant man and has this, well, has a dad. He's got like a real soccer, oh my God. soccer, soccer mom dad who just as clearly is living, living vicariously through his son. Um, but I mean, think about how much work it is probably to go from nothing to up to Arnold's level, you mm-hmm. know, like how, how much work that had. God, to his been. dad doesn't number on him in this movie. <laughs> so I, I am not yeah. a sports guy. Maybe you can help me out with this, Dave, but is his dad a good coach or is he just wrecking him uh, intellectually and psychically and <laughs> emotionally? Most definitely the second one. Like his dad <laughs> is awful and he doesn't offer anything of value. He just keeps offering like, you got to beat this guy. You got to beat this guy. This is the only chance you have. This is the only thing that matters. Basically, he's, this is your last chance. This is your last chance. It's like, I mean, Lou Ferrigno's 24 in this movie. <laughs> he's got, you know, a good decade ahead of him. There there was one guy, I think, who's over 40 in yep. this. So yep. it's like, he clearly, if he, want, if he wants to be professional bodybuilding, he's got years ahead of him. But his dad treats him like it's like... Like, there's no good motivation. There's no good foundation for building up. It's, it's not good coaching. It's just, he's just thinking off the top of his head, well, what would make me more more motivated? Well, I'd want to get that guy. So I'm just going to keep telling you that guy's better than you and you need to do more. He's probably trained twice as hard as you are right, right now. And just playing up his insecurities and making him feel bad about himself by saying, Arnold is Arnold is a king. you got to beat Arnold to the point that Lou is doing reps and going, Arnold! Arnold! And it's it's so crazy because this is not the first time we've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger in a one-way rivalry with somebody before. And this is this is Stallone 10 years in the future. Yeah, yeah. Where Arnold doesn't give a fuck and is laughing about everything while this other person is like, I gotta beat him at the box office. Um and Oh my God. And it's like, I think Arnold did to Stallone later. This is the story that he did to, to Lou Ferrigno and others here, which is give him bad advice, which is, oh, that guy wants to compete with me. 
the the story goes, and take this with a grain of salt, uh-huh. that Arnold pretended to want to do stop or my mom will shoot, <laughs> <laughs> even though he didn't want to, so that Stallone would grab it up and he could giggle about it. That is the story. So it Arnold has a kind of puckish sense of humor, and you can sort of get him kind of fucking with people a little, and he'll show up at something. And be the friendliest guy in the world while doing psychological warfare to sort of dig right. under your skin. And it's so hard to watch because Lou is such a sweet motherfucker. You just, you can see in his eyes that he has these insecurities, that he's clearly battling, that he's worked really, really hard, that he has this domineering father who just walks right past him and talks over him. There's a conversation at breakfast where it's Arnold, Lou Ferrigno, and Lou's dad. And Lou just keeps trying to say something or stick up for himself, but his dad just talks over him and he just kind of like, uh, uh, and I'm just like, Oh, Lou. Well, and you got to think Lou was, like I said, he was 24 years old. This was the sixth, uh, straight Mr. Olympian that Arnold won, which means his first one was when Lou was 18 or 19 years old. This right. was a hero for him. He's now trying to compete against somebody who is a hero. And his dad is basically just like telling him his, he's trash and undercutting his confidence everywhere he turns. <laughs> like it is the worst. And yeah, I, I just want to go out and hug the guy. Even though, you know, he's six foot eight and built of muscle. And I'm just like, Oh buddy, come here, oh, come here, bring it in buddy. <laughs> I watched this movie and I'm like, I think Lou would have been really good as Fezzik in, in the princess bride. <laughs> Because uh, he just has that same kind of quality about him where he just, you can tell his thin skin and he's got this heart underneath it and he feels things when people remind him of something that he feels bad about with himself. And you just see it sting. You see it in his eyes. And at the end, when he's doing his poses, you're like, fuck, he got in his head. He got in his head. I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. And you can just go, oh, poor Lou. Come on. I want to see you win. I you Kick that fucking football, Charlie Brown. And... I just, I feel so bad, but it's like, I, I kind of comfort myself by going, okay, he's going to be a TV star in like a couple years. <laughs> he's going to be one of the biggest things on TV. He's going to be one of the best known muscle guys around soon. Uh, so I, the, I had this realization cause I obviously knew this about Arnold, but Arnold and Lou Ferrigno have like the same origin story because they both had cop dads. Oh, and God. so one of the obviously one of the ways that they had like internalized the I want to be like my dad is I want to be powerful, right? Mm. So they ended up both becoming the difference being as I don't think that uh that Arnold's dad hounded him the same way that Lou Ferrigno's dad hounded him. And that's crazy because Arnold's dad was an ex-Nazi. Right. So when, you, when your ex-Nazi dad is less domineering than another guy's dad <laughs> Well, he did travel the other side of the world to skid away from him, too. So, <laughs> But they both do grow up to be somebody who could break their dad in half. It seems like there's something there, psychologically, that you can pick apart. So there's something that the movie doesn't address that I just really want to know. Because I'm looking at Gold's Gym. I'm looking at these muscle-bound guys who are all this like little community, and they got Muscle Beach right there, and they're all working together and everything. And keep in mind, Gold's Gym, which, like, that's a place famous enough that I've heard of it, and gyms are not something I'm actually a big, like... <laughs> It's not something I spend a lot a of time fan? thinking about. Like, I go to the gym occasionally. Yeah, in fact, actually. I'm going to go to the insecurity <laughs> store. I skipped the gym to watch this movie. So that's the most American thing ever. But, like, I'm looking at all these guys and I'm like, they have to spend so much time working out, building this muscle and everything. What do these guys do for a living? What did Arnold do for a living from 1968 to 1975? Good question. Because there's no way that the prize money for these competitions was enough to support himself. Let so, alone fly to South Africa. Fly to South Africa, exactly. Like, so what were these guys doing? There must have been some decent Mr. Olympia prize money. Not great. Not like I won the Super Bowl money. But there's got to be something decent enough that you can hold Mr. Olympia somewhere. What is it? Did they say that Lou Ferrigno worked in like a welding shop or something? Uh, yeah. yeah. Steel worker. Yeah. yeah. But he's a lot more blue collar than Arnold in this. Like, yeah. he's living with his parents um, and doing this. Um, I think he said that he had a job at like a sheet metal company or something but quit after he saw a guy get his hand chopped off <laughs> and like i would you definitely aren't gonna win that hand <laughs> that bodybuilding competition with one hand um but yeah i think that it's you kind of have to subsume your life in this that you are going to have to be supported by somebody else who understands your dream and is going to support you financially so that you can Jesus Christ, just not just building the muscle to get to that point, but maintaining it. Mm-hmm. That 
once you do that, it's not like I sculpted something and, you know, the statue of David is still up there, even though Michelangelo has been dead for centuries. Um, when you sculpt your body that way, you got to keep it like that. It doesn't just stay that way yeah. forever. So you get there and you have to keep doing it. You can't stop ever. To get to that level, I can only imagine that everything in your life is so regimented from your diet to your exercise routine to, God, like your probably- sleep schedule and all that stuff. Like yeah. how many hours a day do you think a guy like that has to spend at least exercising? Two, at least two or three hours a day. That is, that is crazy. You are committed if you get into that. Yeah. I mean, if you're an Olympic athlete, what that they say that they basically work nine to five in exercise and yeah. training, basically. But yeah. but yeah, a lot of these guys are having clearly have a Joe Judge. Was name Mike Katz? Is that was this, mm. he's a he's a school teacher, right? Yeah, he's a middle school teacher. I felt so bad for that dude. <laughs> oh man, that's, he seemed like a sweet guy, and he was like forty, like forty some two years old, forty four years old or something, and he yeah he was like losing hair on the top of his head, but yeah, he easily could be from the layman, me, could be on the same stage as Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. Right, yeah. right. And and well, and there's that that's one of the things like getting back to the documentary as a film, it was really effective in that like finding ways to tell these stories. And some of them I've since learned are were pretty much faked, which is kind of sad, but you know, that's document docudrama storytelling for you. Right. But the one that really got to me, like you said, Mike, the it broke my heart when you have this um um Waller is basically talking with his friends about how he's going to get into Mike's head. And the whole thing is about mind games. I'm going to get in these guys' head. He's like, I'm going to steal his favorite shirt. I'm just going to steal his favorite shirt and it's going to mess his mind up and everything. And then they go to the competition and you see them up there and um, uh, Mike Katz comes in fourth. He doesn't even get to stay on the stage for the final judging. And he walks back. He's just looking around. Hey, where's my shirt? Hey, hey, anybody see my shirt? And it's like, oh, yeah, he... uh, he took it. He's like, oh, oh, that's a shame. And then you see him sitting there. It's like, hey, they're announcing the winner, and Waller Ugh. wins. And you see his face. It's like, hey, he won. How great is that for him? And he's so <laughs> excited for this guy. He's, he's on camera, and you see him trying to be really gracious and kind, but you can see his heartbreaking behind his eyes, and it's like rippling underneath. And when you're on a documentary camera, mm-hmm. you can't do what you want to do, which is go somewhere <laughs> private and cry. So that is one of the things, too. The scene where Waller is throwing the football on the stage was filmed after. After the fact, yes. And the the directors were like, oh, let's, let's do like a clever little thing here. Let's say he actually he did steal his shirt and we're going to have him saying this conversation that when you go when you watch it again you're just sort of like okay this is this feels totally scripted right and he says I'm, I'm bragging about i'm gonna steal his shirt yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing it's like after the fact waller said like it, for years later he got booed at competitions because of this movie and he's like here's the thing i did steal his shirt it was a prank it was a fun prank he was a buddy of mine i was just being silly it wasn't like a tri- mind game thing but yeah he he ended up paying for that extra scene for years because he did a heel turn on camera <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, did. he did and yeah it's it's so crazy. That's what I, I enjoy with this is that there really is an emotional core that you follow in this movie. And it works, even though I don't know anything about this world. I can't <laughs> relate to the sort of discipline that it would take or even want the sort of output that they ha- I don't want to look like a bodybuilder, <laughs> but I can understand wanting something really bad. I can understand being in a in a competitive environment and having a dream and putting so much work into something and then seeing it fall apart and there's a camera pointed at you and you can't cry or that would definitely be in the movie <laughs> and trying to be I mean god my cat's is so gracious I should go shake his hand I'm really happy for him I remember when I win my first trophy this is probably like that and it's just <laughs> he's being so nice and just watching really nice people get their heart broken is such a part of this movie then you get to see it on a bigger scale with a Lou Ferrigno who's even bigger and cuddlier <laughs> and you're just like oh Lou I want to give him a hug too See, the movie makes up for that because the last scene of the movie is Lou Ferrigno's birthday party and obviously we have to talk about the most infamous infamous scene that probably most people who have never seen this movie have seen this scene before. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. right. It's the the big old joint uh, <laughs> with Arnold as numero uno. <laughs> he's got, a, he's got a joint t-shirt. in his mouth. He's got a glass of white wine and he's got fried chicken on a plate <laughs> on his belly and he's just reclining back. I agree. This scene is a crime. It's a crime to taste. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I looked it up. That shirt is available. You can buy it on the internet. Um, but yeah, the... The thing that I find so fascinating is that 
I don't know if Arnold's fucking with Lou in that scene where they're calling for a birthday party because it that's Arnold's power is you kind of it gets just enough where you're like he's being nice to me so I can't get mad <laughs> but I think he's fucking with me <laughs> I don't know but he's still smiling and they sing he's like hey everybody let's sing birth happy birthday to Lou <laughs> and he's I, and Lou takes it really well but I'm just part of me and you can sort of see it in Lou's eyes like am I being made fun of <laughs> and that's the hard part is I know that feeling so fucking hard my bully radar through junior high and high school is so incredibly honed i know what it's like to be the weird kid so i get such sympathy pains for lou ferrigno in this movie (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah uh speaking of sympathetic uh sympathetic did you guys have the same reaction of watching this movie that i did is that after after about 40 minutes or so especially when they're just having montages of the posing that i was unconsciously clenching and unclenching muscles in my body like i I didn't realize i was doing it like i was tightening my calves or whatever just sort of like as a reaction to seeing these like enormous huge sinewy muscles tense and untense but i I was like i was unconsciously tensing my own body i don't know why you didn't guys didn't have that did not have that myself (laughs) i I was just like why are my calves hurt oh maybe this is what people get out of it we asked that question earlier but i don't know i think you just you're kind of amazed at i mean what do people get out of sports you want to see somebody do something amazing physically that you yourself could not do you want to go holy shit somebody just did that and when you watch a guy come out and he's this big bulgy muscly v-shape you're like holy shit somebody did that i cannot believe that that is amazing and then watch how much work they put into that and you're like i have never put that much work into anything and for me it's like arnold schwarzenegger in particular is uh he is he ruined what strength looked like for me for years Mm. because i grew up in the 80s i grew up seeing pictures of him and seeing movies with him through the 80s and 90s and then I'd go back and watch like a 1960s Hercules movie with somebody who is incredibly strong and muscular but to me looks like a normal guy because his arms don't make a bubble letter E while he's holding a gun like <laughs> yeah. Arnold like he everyone else in the world looks weak after you're used yeah. to seeing him once he set that standard suddenly it's like yeah everybody else like eh. you see Kirk Douglas and Spartacus and you're like this guy's not strong right? why is he the greatest warrior that's ever lived he looks puny yeah but you look at a lot of like professional wrestlers there's a lot of different shaped guys and some of the strongest guys whether it's mark henry or vader they don't look like arnold schwarzenegger that arnold schwarzenegger looks a lot more like say triple h or the ultimate warrior and the ultimate warrior is sort of famous for running out of breath really really (laughs) shortly into matches where you know who can wrestle for over an hour it's rick flair who doesn't look like arnold schwarzenegger right they they've called him like a genetic marvel because i don't know why this guy doesn't look tired after wrestling for an hour probably cocaine (laughs) but but i i look at this and go the human body is not like this scale of you're really strong and really fast and really resilient when you look like this and you're really weak when you look like that it looks like a lot of different things and some people who are really fucking strong don't wouldn't be coded as strong in a movie right and it's it is weird because arnold for about 10 years shaped literally shaped how other action stars would look Exactly, exactly. And that shaped my opinion of what an action star should look like. Because sure. if you're not going to be Arnold, you should be John McClane. Yeah. You should be a normal skinny guy if you're not going to be Arnold. Yeah, and you <laughs> can, like Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan is an incredible shape in his movies and stuff like that. But a lot of times he's wearing like a sweatshirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> that The way he shows off isn't through flexing. It's through doing something that no sane person would ever do <laughs> and somehow being alive at the that's, end. That's why it is strange when you watch an early, like a 70s Jackie Chan movie and he has his shirt off and you're like, of course Jackie Chan is ripped. Of course he's like, he's got an amazing looking body. But yeah, the later you get in it, the more he's just like doing like rolling down telephone poles and stuff in baggy pants. Yeah, or, and I think a lot of that- Or a tuxedo. Tri- yes, our tuxedo, yeah. That's the influence of, of Bruce Lee again, too, yeah. which is everyone yeah. wanted to be Bruce Lee at the beginning of Jackie Chan's career. So, you know, the, the you are influenced by the bodies of other action stars, and everyone wanted to be Bruce Lee, and even Jackie Chan wanted to be Bruce Lee until he realized that his true destiny was to be Buster Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess that leads us to uh, the two big questions that we always have on this show. First one being, is Pumping Iron a good movie? I would absolutely say yes. And it's weird because 
going into this, like I said, I was really unsure. It's like, oh, do I have to watch this new, you know, workout <laughs> documentary? Oh, okay, fine, I'll watch it. And then even when I was done, like, I'm still not sure. But the more I ruminate, the more I think it's like, this is a really, really well-made documentary. It tells stories. It it's There is, as part, particularly in sports documentaries, it's something you see a lot now, but you didn't see for years. There was a series a couple of years ago ESPN did called 30 for 30 mm-hmm. as their 30-year anniversary. And the best of those documentaries were the ones that were about something that you had no idea about. The things that I had the slightest interest i never would have said hey i want to watch a documentary about two basketball players who grew up in czechoslovakia when that was still a thing and what happened to their relationship when the czech republic broke up and all that like i wouldn't i never would have imagined that is one of the best documentaries i've ever seen pumping iron does that it takes me into a place that i never thought i'd be interested and just gets in my head so i'm thinking about it long after the fact and i think that's exactly what you want to have a documentary so yeah i think it's a really good movie yeah i i have to agree i uh, there's shades of like um i don't know if either of you guys know who errol morris is the documentary filmmaker and he's he directed fog of war most recently and there's a he did one on the um shit, what's his name the acid guy uh, Leary? Yeah, Timothy Leary. But back in the 70s, he did these movies that were basically in the same vein as this. He did one called Gates of Heaven and, oh, I can't remember, something Florida. Um, and basically his idea about doing these documentaries when before it would be like, oh, uh, you know, we're, his, his idea is let's find this weird thing that's going on, this niche thing, and find the goofiest people and just let them talk. And because the longer you're going to spend time with these people that are centered around this weird thing. And so for for him, it's like for one of these is like the people who are involved in the pet funeral home business in Northern California in the 70s or whatever. The more the more personalities you find, the longer you let them talk, you're going to find unintentionally goofy and charming and interesting and weird things that come out of it. And that is exactly what this is. It's yeah. they showed up with cameras at a place mm. that you would imagine for reasons that we said before, it'd be like, Oh, it's just dudes working out like weird, weird looking dudes working out. But then the personalities are uh, erupt from them and the stories erupt from it. And you do learn something about the thing that, like you said, you have no interest in before. And you're, and of course the, the thing of Arnold is I think, the uh, if this were a movie without Arnold, it would certainly be a lot less watchable. But given that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the top bill of mm-hmm. this movie, and everyone knows who he is, it makes it all that much more satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You can see people before they were famous, and you kind of know how things are going, and you're like, nobody making this movie had any idea what this guy was going to become. He didn't even know what he was going to come. Oh, he probably had a better idea than most. Right. (laughs) And nobody believed him. Um, I'm going to say absolutely big time. Yes. Um, More than anything else, you know what this movie reminded me of was the King of Kong. Yeah. The documentary (laughs) about the Donkey Kong world championships. Me me too. Um, And what it really gets me is again, like you mentioned, Casey, you're entering this strange, weird subculture that you've never heard of starring all of these strange, unusual characters. And at first you go into it going, oh, I'm watching a freak show. And then before you realize it, you're like emotionally invested (laughs) and you like these people and you actually want people to win and you have a rudimentary idea of what good and bad bodybuilding is. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, oh no, oh no, he screwed up his pose, he did it, oh no, he got in his head. And you can see it and you start feeling sad for these guys. And... That's that's the part is there's an emotional core that is remarkably effective in this movie. Um, you have a lot of things in common with King of Kong, including um, sort of a, an insecure, quiet, introverted guy who enters into this subculture as a challenger to take on the longtime arrogant champion mm-hmm. who's kind of a bad guy. Um and you see these sort of strange, interesting people just kind of become people you know over the course of the movie. Um, I think this movie's great. I think that you can you can see a side of sports that nobody really even still talks about. This thing is still niche. So it still has that same element of kind of pulling back the curtain and looking at something going, why would people do this? Why would people watch this? What kind of people would aspire to be the king of this world? And you get mostly satisfying or at least really interesting answers in this movie. Yeah. 
So I guess that leads us to the second question. Is Pumping Iron a good Arnold movie? And this is another question that I changed my opinion on because I came in thinking it's like, well, I have a thing in my head of what an Arnold movie is. It includes action. It includes quips. It includes some some point of the only thing that this movie have has that I usually expect to have an Arnold movie is at least one point of going. Well, there was there was some Arnold grunting though when they're showing him working out. So there's a little bit of Arnold. There's some solid Arnold grunting and not acting grunting, real grunting. (laughs) I think Arnold. Pain noises? That is when he is at his max. <laughs> but yeah. But and but the more I think about it, the more the more I settled on it. it's like, no, the, they recognized like you like you said, Mike, at the beginning of the movie, you know immediately, starring Arl Schwarzenegger. Right. When they finished making the movie that was probably not like when they had a hundred hours of film, that was probably not necessarily for sure. But as they dug through, they're like, No, this is the personality that stands out and it is his dickishness and charm and the combination of those two things that really drives a lot of the emotion of this film and it's all it does have that feeling of reality that feeling of like no this is actually who this guy is at least who he was when he was in his 20s and as that it's like no yeah this is he took something that wasn't even supposed to be his and his personality is so big and so strong that he made it an Arnold movie. So, yeah, it's a good Arnold movie. I, I think that I'm usually the one who's probably the most stringent, most strict for this question. And Arnold wins, gets yeah. to win. So in it, he gets to be the the biggest, baddest motherfucker up there, and he gets to win and be charming. And in that way, then this is a good Arnold movie for that reason. Yeah, I, I say so, too. This movie is so much, like you said, built on Arnold's personality. And you see right there why this guy became a global superstar, why he's the one fighting the muscle man in the rubber costume instead of being the rubber muscle man in the costume. This is why he's headlining movies. This is why we know how to pronounce his name (laughs) is there's this quality to him that is just so fascinating to watch that he's charming and you kind of want to hang out with him, even though you want to worry a little bit. You think he's going to make fun of me? (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's great. He's so good in this. And you see on display, like I mentioned, effortlessly charming. He just pops off of the screen, his smile, he's articulate and outgoing, and you understand why everyone likes him. You understand why, at the end, they call him the incredible, the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you see the beginning here about his ability to have this charm so powerful that he can undercut his ability to talk about how he fantasizes about being a powerful dictator (laughs) or the way he's bullying Lou Ferrigno or, you know, just, Oh, you see all of that are saying, Oh yeah. Franco Colombo. He's, he's really smart, but he's a child. And when this competition comes, I will be his father. (laughs) I mean, and he's just, there's a a weird sweetness to him where otherwise he'd come off totally Cobra Kai about this, but he doesn't. Um, I, I think he's fucking great in this movie. So I think this is a great Arnold movie. So with that, Dave Brulette, thank you so much for joining us on this this episode. Um, I'm glad we could help you get a good pump. <laughs> and are there uh, again, uh, if people want to find out more about you or any of like your old podcast, Hands Free Football, where should they look? Yeah, if you want to go, uh, they're all still up. HandsFreeFootball.com. You can find all of the them there. If you want to go real deep in the Dave Brulette uh, expanded universe, I do have an old blog that I have not written on in about six years called the Atheist Sounding Board. And here's the thing: it's still up. And honestly, like I've Every once in a while, I'll go back and read a piece. I'm like, wow, I actually was a lot better than I thought I was. Like, I felt like I was stumbling through, but then I read them like, oh, actually, there's some really good thoughts here. So I think uh, you should fire it back up, but then just make it a bodybuilding blog. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I, most of my bodybuilding goes around the waist. (laughs) So, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not too active in the, in the sort of like podcast world anymore. Uh, there will be an episode of Ask an Atheist coming up in a few weeks where, uh, I'm, planning to be on so look for that but where you're playing the villain right oh most most (laughs) definitely (laughs) there'll be a lot of arnold grunting yeah (laughs) thank you so much dave thanks for having me guys it's been a blast yeah and thank you again to our episode sponsors big special thank you to margaret king tim batson dan neidecker zuri russell steel wolf sterling taylor tom the belgian wim the belgian misa the barbarian 
James Brucker, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette. Thank you, Dave. Hey, yeah. Calzone, Kaylin, Matt Weber, and Hans Twite. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to... Uh, or click the big red button on podcastalavistababy.com. It'll be on the right hand of the screen on your computer, bottom of the screen on your phone. Until then, we will catch you all next month. Podcast La Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in a gym is the pump. Let's say you train your biceps. Blood is rushing into your muscles, and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight. It's like somebody blowing air into into your muscle. It just blows up, and it feels different. It feels fantastic. It's as satisfying to me as uh, coming is, you know, as uh, having sex with a woman and coming. So, can you believe how much I am in heaven? I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym, I'm getting the feeling of coming at home, I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pump up, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people, I get the same feeling. So I'm coming day and night. I mean, it's terrific, right? (laughs) So, you know, I'm in heaven.